This episode is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now. Unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. It's just me. Um, another solo Ajima show for you. Welcome back. This is the Ajima show. Typically, there is a co-host, Peter Kim, but today it is just me, your host, Unji Kim. And um, yeah, I'm going to just hop right into it. And um, you know what I realized is that um, I've become one of those people that just sits in my car in silence. Like I just turn off all music. I don't listen to anything. I don't look at my phone. I will just drive in silence, like a psycho. Um, and honestly, the reason why I do it is because I just need some goddamn quiet. Just for a second. I just need a second. You know, and where I'm not making any decisions. I don't want to decide what I want to listen to. I would prefer to be completely inert and allow my body to just start doing the thing, which is drive like this muscle memory rote thing, not making any choices. The road is ahead is telling me how to react. I don't want to make any, I don't want to make any decisions. I just want to sit in silence. It's actually insane. I remember as a young person, how baffling this was. And now as a parent, as an adult, I get it. You just want a moment of just some goddamn peace and quiet. <laughs> like it is. I'm a stereotype. You know? Like I empathize with Chevy Chase in all those movies now. I understand Kevin's mom in Home Alone. Why won't these ch- kids... Shut up. They should just shut the fuck up. Why won't your spouse just shut the fuck up? I need a minute. So yeah. That's something I re- like that was one of those things I realized as I drove home in my stony silence. But I mean it's not, the thing is there's no emotion attached to the silence. It just is. You know? And that's another thing like just you know you're listening to a podcast. <laughs> But, I mean, I am finding the need for more moments of stillness, of quiet in my life, because we are so deeply inundated by stimulus, stimuli, incessantly. You know, you wake up and there's like a brief moment between your eyes opening and your eyes in front of a phone in front of a computer screen, in front of a Siri, like some sort of uh, Alexa type thing. There's just a sliver of time where you're alone with your thoughts. And I didn't realize, I I guess I've always tried to run away from my thoughts. 
And it's not even that in the silence when I'm driving home from dropping off my son, when I drive in silence, that like I'm thinking about anything. I'm not thinking about shit. I'm literally thinking about nothing. My, my mind is a complete blank. Sometimes I plot my revenge. But that's, you know, it goes away. Sometimes I am plotting my revenge. Um, on a multitude of my enemies and people who have wronged me. But outside of that, it's just like literal silence. Like my mind... It is simply, I don't, there's not even grass in this idea of my mind. There's no, there's, it's a desert. It is blank. It is placid. It is an ocean. And it is so, it's so deeply needed. If I don't have it, if I need to be on a phone call or I'm rushing and so I need to like prepare for something and so I'm listening to like sides or something, it fucks me up for the rest of the day. I need that silence. And I would argue that all of us sort of do, you know, this like, it's the reason why even in the, in, in the shower, this like sort of moment where we're sort of forced to have some silence. I mean, you can still listen to Frasier and watch Frasier from the shower, which I have and consistently do. But, you know, if your, your you know, bathroom setup isn't ideal, then you can't really listen or watch it depends on how wet your bathroom gets i guess so yeah you know i mean, i just wanted to take a moment and kind of you know from, from last week's ama touch base a little more about um some people have questions very specifically about you know, our mental health, which Peter and I talked about, but also like some people were reaching out to me specifically about um, my own mental health and like my beginnings as a comedian and, you know, and, you know, I was talking to, so I'm on like whatever week X of being on medication, finally getting to sleep, which has been truly a gift. Um, but I had this moment with my therapist last week where she asked me if I could em- envision a creative life without, exter- without the need for external validation. If I could imagine a life that I lived creatively without external validation. And I took a moment. And I really thought about it. And, you know, she was saying, like, you know, the external validation of, like, live comedy, of stand-up. At least that's what I thought she meant. So I was thinking about it and was silent for a while because I was really thinking. And I looked at her and said, but then where would I get it from? And she was like, no, I mean, so you, I meant that you, you wouldn't need it. (laughs) I was like, never occurred to me to live a life without it. Never occurred to me as a fucking option not to need the external validation. What? (laughs) 
no external validation, then how will people know? How will I know? How will people know I'm good? And how will I know I'm good? Unless they're judging. And that really, that like, I mean, it was a moment where, you know, she kind of cited all the things that I've said and was like, well, you know, you talk a lot about how others perceive you. And I was telling Peter about this and he was like, yeah, it's because we're trash, you know, like coming from a history where our parents have explicitly said that their love is conditional and then demonstrated that, that they were, our parents were not all talk. They not only told us that it was conditional, but then they demonstrated that it was so. And having that as a template for love means that if you are a sensitive, love-starved person, you will constantly, you, you learn that pattern and you seek to fulfill it. And then if you're a success-oriented person, you will try to get as much of that as possible. I mean, I, so I'm, I'm doing my own, like, little wellness journey, you know. Um, Peter, like, had all the doctors he went to. I went to a doctor over Zoom, uh, but she's, like, a naturopath. So she's, like, a bona fide doctor, but she is a naturopath. So that means that, like, uh, she explained it to me this way. When you go to a regular doctor and you have a cough, the doctor will prescribe something for the cough, where she will try to figure out why you're coughing and fix that. And I came to this and I accept, I mean, I don't really, you know, I get acupuncture. I believe in all the stuff, you know, I, I, I'm buying, I'm dripping in crystals, but you know, you know, at the end of the day, I believe in science, yada, yada, yada. But one of my friends had actually been suffering from a chronic cough, like literally this exact example. And she had been on steroids and like literally an annual thing where she just had a cough for like three to four months and like a heavy cough. And she was on steroids. She was like, that's the only way they could address it because there's nothing else wrong with her from this like pertussis. And so then she went to a naturopath. Got some fucking herbs, bing, bang, boom, pointy, pointy, pointy with the acupuncture. This bitch is cured. Like, this is years of Western. And that's the thing. It's like, why do I continue to be hoodwinked by the Western way of doing things when the Eastern way has proven to be so much more successful? Chinese people don't fucking die. Asian people don't fucking die. We live for fucking, like, I mean... You see these wizened faces all over Asia sucking down cigarettes, you know, and they're fucking fine. I mean, most of the time, actually don't smoke, but I mean, I do, but I'm just saying, I don't know why I continue to be amazed. Like, no fucking shit. Of course, this is the better way of doing things, addressing what's going on. And so I was talking to the doctor and I'm telling her about all my habits. She's asking me about, you know, she dragged me about my water intake and my coffee she's just like okay <laughs> like just that alone <laughs> insane i don't like water 
I don't like it. I don't like how it makes me feel. I mean, it makes me feel better, of course, but you know, I don't like the taste of it. I don't, I don't like anything about it. I don't like the pee pee. I don't like any of it. She walked me through it calmly, gently ribbing, you know, like in, in only the way that a middle-aged Indian woman can. And it was just fucking, I listen. And she's going through everything and I'm telling her about all the things I do do. And she, it was strange because she was like, you know, it seems like you take really good care of yourself in some ways. And then like on the, and then the alternate is that you just treat it like trash. And what was crazy is that I, what I realized in that moment is that I take really good care of how I will look, right? I take the vitamins, I do this, I take skincare, I eat right, I exercise, but I take no care about how I will feel. No interest in that. And that goes back to the other thing. It's just about the external validation. And like the idea of loving yourself this way, of accepting love unconditionally, like, and then feeling worthy of it. (laughs) I know we talk about it a lot on this podcast, but Jesus Christ, where do people find this? Where do people find the strength? Like I, inside of a world, inside of a culture and an economic system that weighs value on things that historically do not yield happiness, but do connote success, right? Like, how do you, how do you choose that? How is that? That to me is because you need to, you need success to have value. And then the only way to achieve success, uh, the only way to achieve happiness is kind of presumably to have less success because you don't care about it, right? Is it? I mean, to me, this is fucked, right? Because our biological, spiritual goal as, as humans seems diametrically opposed to the goals of the society we live inside of, of the culture and society we have constructed for ourselves. You know, it's kind of, it's like humanity has fucking daddy issues. Like we're the ones that constructed this fucking society. And the thing is, I, I feel like, and I know this feels like so in like a, smoking pot in a dorm room shit. Cause I feel like almost certain that in my twenties I did, I held this exact idea in my mind. Like I saw this, I saw like, Oh yeah. Like I took the red pill or whatever. I saw, I know this, the matrix. I saw this. Now I've hugged a tree. I've licked grass. I've thrown dirt. I saw this. I know I have. And then I started to desire success. I started to desire shit, you know? And it was good because it was a demonstration ultimately of my own self-love. You know, it's when I started to, it's when I found love. 
you know? And it's like, it's almost like the fact that I started a life with someone made me greedy. You know, I wanted stability. I wanted these things. I wanted, you know, I don't, I, I am not currently at a, at a space where I can even understand how you hold all these things in two hands. Like in, with your mind, I don't, I can, I can't even piece it together. You know, the thing, okay, so this actually gets into one of the AMA, another one of the AMA cues about how did I know that I wanted to be married and have children? When did I know? When did I know that? And honestly, I never made a choice about that specific marker. I never decided I want to be married. I want to have children. I never cared about that as a marker. You know, I was a, a fucking cool ass chick, free spirit. I think it's like, that was my whole thing. I was like, oh, I'm a free spirit. I'll roam the earth like that bullshit. I mean, you can see how like insufferable I was, right? And what happened was I made, what I did do was I made a choice that I would love someone unconditionally. And I made a choice that I wanted to share a life with that person. And that only happened after I got a sense of my own self-worth. I started to respect myself, feel like I deserved things. You know, that's when I started to do all that desiring. And that's what happened. I mean, plain and simple. I, I know it sounds almost trite, but it didn't feel that way. I mean, it was an epic decision, you know, and overwhelming. But this is the other thing. I made a choice, right? I made that choice and it came from a certain level of self-worth, self-respect. I started having for myself things I wanted for myself that were not external, but like I felt like I deserved love from someone else. That I deserved to have, like to create a home and like figured out how to do that. Because I did not. I mean, there's nothing about that was that was intuitive to me. I don't have the, you know, there's nothing in me that I didn't have a template for what a functioning, healthy relationship was. It was just all trial and error. And the thing is, what had to happen, and this is the other thing. You have to make a choice. And then when you make a choice, that means that there are other possibilities that are no longer available to you. That's what's daunting. That's what's daunting is that when you make a choice, right? When you decide, okay, this is the person or whatever. And again, marriage is a function of like, it's a piece of paper from the state, but it, it's more the coupling. That's a fucking vibe. That's an energy. That is a force of biological nature that occurs between two people. 
right? To make a home and start a life as a whole other thing. Marriage is marriage, you know, like that's a fucking party. That's this shit, you know, whatever. Like if you got the funds, you have like, you know, you're in your early 30s and you have enough friends, go for it. Fuck, you know, if you got 50 grand to burn, 20 grand to burn, 10 grand to burn, and you love a party, fucking go for it. As long as one of you doesn't, get, you know, never really make way more money than, you know, you break up, prenup up that shit. But I'm just saying that like this decision to share a life together to create something together that's a choice you make you know before you get married hopefully right before you have children and that choice means so i have the, okay so i have this friend who is my age and he's successful i mean increasingly less so but like he parties he loves the party. He can't stop the party. Who liked the party? This friend loves the party. And he, they're like, simply refuses, they simply refuse to make a choice about wanting to settle down with anybody share a life, love fully. And it's so deeply because he, and this is the thing, I was like this too. You, he feels overwhelmed, awash in possibility. For him, every single person, every single relationship, every single possible connection that he agrees to go full in on means that all other possibilities disappear. And it's true. When you choose one person, that means that you are choosing to not say yes to other possibilities that may happen in the future. Like that, when you come to a fork in the road, right? And that's the thing, it's not even a fork. Let's say it's a, like a tree branch. There are all these branches and all these limbs that extend out into forever. And each of them kind of represent another choice, another avenue, another way that you could choose to go. But when you pick a fucking branch to crawl up on and go follow to its end, you can't go to the other branches. You can't go back. Right? You start another branch. And that's what's terrifying. And he just constantly ruminates over every permutation of what could or what couldn't happen regarding each of his possible, like, little flings or meetings or encounters. And it never results in a yes. It's always a maybe. And the thing is, he, what, he, what he doesn't realize is that he's ultimately choosing nothing. You know? And, like, that's what I was like. I just was always constantly overwhelmed by the possibilities that 
lay before me, right? Like it's why I never chose a major. It's why I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do creatively. I couldn't do this and do that. I was just always overwrought with possibilities. And I ultimately wound up doing nothing. And the thing is, when you continue to choose nothing, you wind up holding like just, it's literally the dust of potential and memory, right? Like you remember the slight encounter. You remember the kiss. You'll remember the good time you had doing, um, drinking that evening at that place. But you never asked for the number, you never followed up, you never asked for the second date, you never decided to say, I love you. Because that would have meant more. But you have the memories, right? Those like small little things. You have small, fun memories, fond memories. But what I've realized is that none of those memories will will hold joy. Because joy is a whole other fucking thing. You know, it's like the, it's a, I think it's the name of a parenting book, but it's like encapsulates so many adult choices and like what happiness is, but it's like, it's no fun, all joy, you know? And that's what making a choice enables you to experience. I, like, that's the other thing. Yeah, it'll be hard. It's going to suck. You'll never get to fuck that cool guy that you would have met if you hadn't committed to this. You know, it would have been a fun fuck. You know. But you'll never experience the joy of sharing a life. You know? And the thing is, you can get addicted to fun. You can get addicted to this like cursory sense of life, like just moving along, nothing is a big deal. You can get addicted to it because it's, a, it's like drugs, like it's a, it's a short kind of immediate high, the inevitable decline and then you're like let's do that all over again and like any addiction it starts to affect your relationships with your friends your family your work because you're having too much fun and your ass is 35 your ass is 40 your ass is 55 you know But how do I find joy then? And I'm just bringing it back to the top. Like, how do I find joy then outside of external validation? Because right? like clearly I'm just talking to myself through it. Like I'm addicted to that. 
You know, like that's what I, that's what I'm addicted to. And it's just as affecting. And I have to, I guess I have to make a choice. I have to make a choice that I'll have to find my own self worthy and find a well of love for myself that I don't know. Like, do you, you know, do you, how do people get that? You build it yourself, you make it. What's the deal? You know? Yeah. Well, I'll let you guys know next week. <laughs> What's this too sad? <laughs> okay. Um, I'll be back with Kick-Ass Korean. <laughs> To your favorite part of the show, Kick-Ass Korean. Gee-ya! All right. My Kick-Ass Korean for this week is Shi-Young Yim. Um, she is a playwright from Seattle who is currently pursuing her MFA in playwriting. Okay, at Brown. Okay. Um, where she is a recipient of the Stephen Sondheim Graduate Fellowship in Theater Arts. She was a 2021 playwriting scholar at a uh, Siwani uh, writers conference and a playwright for the new now commission um her play jar of fat just won second place for the paul Stephen uh, lim playwriting award at the kennedy center uh american theater festival so i just was very compelled by the synopsis of this play jar of fat the synopsis is in a, in a fantastical fairy tale world, two Korean American sisters are deemed too fat to fit in their family grave, with undesirability, in with undesirability fastened upon their bodies. How will their souls endure? Will the sisters' close bond survive under the pressure of their fretful parents, who will spare no effort to get them tinier? Jar of Fat is an absurdist comedy that celebrates and explodes notions of desire, ugliness, and beauty through the eyes of a family who hides from and in the stuff of fat. Crossing intersections between Korean-American identity and fat phobia, this play probes a beauty culture that can sometimes look foreign to mainstream American notions of what's desirable or ugly to behold. Yes! I mean, there's, there's nothing that more deeply sort of encapsulates, I think, the sliver that on Ajima Show we try to highlight, the sliver of culture. And it is truly this, that it's a type of culture that can look so crazy to mainstream America, but it is American because we're here. But it doesn't mean that it's not equally as insane. <laughs> and it's also Korean, utterly Korean. And this phobia thing is so deeply embedded in the way that so many of our parents speak to us. You know, it's like couched in this language of concern. It's couched in this language of um, love and care, right? It's you must eat. You can't eat. Your body is wrong. But you are perfect. 
And it's so dizzying, the calculation you have to make inside of that kind of interaction. Anyways, I thought the synopsis sounded fucking very cool. Um, and so our kick-ass Korean this week is Shi Young Yim. All right. I think that's it for me. Um, thank you guys. I'll see you next week. Hopefully with Peter back. Bye.